0: Open your Bibles if you would to the Book of Genesis. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. The guys will bring you a copy, and uh, you just grab it and you open it to page one or page two, whatever we're going to look at today. Um, I, I got an email that came through this week. Let me let me read it to you, and I hope it represents a whole bunch of you. Need a Bible? Raise your hand really high. As people come in, too, they're going to have to get to those seats that are in the middle. Easiest way would be if you would move over. I know you're not going to want to do that, so you'll have to stand up and be uncomfortable, but just note that, that, that you chose that. Um, <laughs> could have moved over. I got this email. Wow, what an amazing series. Thank you for this series. Thank you for all the prayer support. Uh, it just clicked. Uh, as I was thinking and, and thanking God for his body and his blood, for me, a light came on. All these years, I've not felt very valued or worthy and, and were years of believing a lie. My life has value because I'm made in my triune God's image. Since so we talked about last week, the series has been a good one. It started with this idea of, here's God... He's a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, eternally in existence, always separate, okay? So somebody, uh, you know, the other day was trying to explain to me, and you've heard this probably illustration before, the Trinity is like it's like water. It can be in the form, and then it can it can be a liquid, and then it can freeze, and it can be solid, or put heat in it, and it's a gas. Well, the problem with that illustration is when it becomes solid, it ceases to be liquid and gas. When it becomes liquid, it ceases to be solid and gas. When it becomes gas, it ceases, it, it, it ceases to be liquid and solid. And, and, and God never is the Holy Spirit for a while, and then the Father for a while, and then Jesus for a while. So every, every, every illustration kind of breaks down in this whole thing. Uh, you, you might go and say, okay, here's Tom who is at the same time, father to his kids, husband to his wife, and friend to millions? Okay You could probably use that, <laughs> probably use that as an illustration. And, and, but but you get the, you see what I'm trying to illustrate there, the tension in this. So then the, the second week, we talked about revelation. said so this is Bible's the word of God. And then we talked about creation. We really looked at Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then last week, I really had the privilege of taking us through the fact that God made us in his image. That, that we are not little gods, but we reflect some of the attributes of God. It's as though that's what that idea of, of made in the image is the idea of reflecting that. Or the idea maybe of a, of a mirror as we reflect that back. Uh, we are made in his image. Now, this week, uh, we get to talk about, really, Genesis chapter 3 and its uh, effect on us. I want to read you a fairly long quote from Ray Stedman as he does his introduction into Genesis 3. He writes this, we come to Genesis 3 with a heightened sense of anticipation. In many ways, this is the most important piece of information ever conveyed To man. Here is the ultimate explanation for the tensions this morning among the nations. Here we have the answer to the eternal why that arises in our hearts in times of tragedy or sorrow. Here is the explanation for over 100 centuries of of human heartache, misery, torture, blood, sweat, and tears. Here's the reason for the powerful fascinations that drugs hold for people for the passion of power and the lure of wealth and the enticement of forbidden sex to young and old alike. Here is the only reasonable answer for the existence of these things in the world today. And and here's an exercise. We're going to do it in a minute, and I've challenged you over the years to do this. He says this, remove this chapter, Genesis 3, from the Bible And the rest of it is absolutely incredible. Ignoring the teaching of this chapter in history and the story of humanity becomes impossible. It becomes impossible either to understand or explain. He means the world around us. The most striking thing about this chapter is that we find ourselves here. You can't read through this chapter without feeling that you've lived it yourself because, of course, you have. This account of temptation and the fall is reproduced in our lives many times a day. We have all heard the voice of the tempter. We have all felt the draw of sin. We know the pang of guilt that follows. In the sense, this is a timeless truth, perhaps that the word certainly speaks rationally. He said, this actually, he's talking about Adam and Eve, actually occurred. It actually happens, and it happens continually. He closes, he said, in that sense, there's no chapter in the Bible that's more up-to-date and more pertinent to our situation than the third chapter of Genesis. Now, what I thought was interesting, and I remember that quote from years ago. I remember the first time, a little autobiographical kind of kind of, let you see into my psyche. The first time I studied Genesis chapter 3 was a huge moment for me, because a lot of things came together at that point, the reliability of Scripture, the explanation for the world we live in, the understanding of myself, and I did, and it's very easy to do, I did exactly what Stedman suggested, Genesis chapter 2, you have it in front of you. You you know it because we've been studying it for about two weeks. God creates, and then he makes man in his image. He he gives him some instruction, really one thing he forbids. He gives him positive instructions. I want you to take dominion over creation. I want you to rule over it, subdue it. And then in in chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, and we'll come back and we'll look at it a little more in depth in a minute. He says, don't eat from that tree. And the end result of all of this in Genesis 2.25 is that the man and his wife were naked and not ashamed. They were innocent. There there is a word that we find in Scripture, and and it's a word that we use over and over again. It's the word shalom. And, And it means peace for sure, but it's way more than that. It has with it the idea of wholeness or completion. Genesis 2.25 is shalom. It, it, it's man living in harmony with God, with himself, in this case with the only other person around, Eve, and with creation. If you skip Genesis 3 and you turn to Genesis 4, when you get there, instead of shalom, peace, wholeness, completion, you find murder, betrayal, hatred, anger, jealousy, pride, if I were to do it. In short, you find rebellion against God. Now, now remembering what we just read that Stedman wrote Let me read to you a little bit from the beginning, uh, opening paragraph, in in the book that we're using, kind of the companion book to this series, the doctrinal book that, that Mark Driscoll and one of his associates has written. He says this, something has gone terribly wrong and everybody knows it. The Bible reveals that God created this world in a perfect state and upon the creation of man and woman, God declared his entire creation is very good. This intended state of perfect beauty in all things is described in the Old Testament as shalom. Even those who do not believe in the Bible persist in longing for a shalom on earth, a happiness on earth, a peace on earth, because deep down in God's image bearers, there's a faint echo of Eden and how things are supposed to be. Yet, no matter how much money we spend or how many elections we hold or how many organizations we start or how many blogs we write or how many complaints we air, how many tears we cry or how many wars we wage, boredom, annoyance, misery, fears, tragedy, suffering, injustice, evil, sickness, pain, and death continue unabated. So you get the sense that I hope that that gels with kind of your experience of the world around you. So when we look at this, and, and all the times I'm going to say, gosh, why would God create a world where? And then you fill in the blank. then it's all of those tragedies, all those sufferings, all those things you look around and say, that's not fair. Why would God create that? And, of course, the answer is what? He didn't. Adam becomes our representative. In Adam in the garden, he represents all of us who had ever lived. He made a decision. He was given an option. He was created in this place called paradise, and he was created without sin. But the minute we get to Genesis 3, we see sin enter the world. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to spend a little bit of time on understanding this story and then really try to understand, you know, what are the implications to us. Now, the serpent was more crafty. The serpent, and that word means literally a shining one. He's crafty, cunning, subtle, more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now, we can't know from this verse. We know from the balance of Scripture that this was Satan. Can't, can't, we can't know that from that verse alone. You, you might read that in there, but you're bringing in other knowledge that you have. You can't in and of itself associate with this, go, boy, this is Satan. We know Satan appears often as an angel of light, as a subtle serpent, as a roaring lion, and here he comes as a shining one, crafty. He, he was not, you. this is what we do, try, try to approach this with fresh eyes. Because we read it and right away we're going, watch out, watch out, watch out. If it were a play, we'd see Satan come in, we'd hear ding, 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 ding. We hear that. We read that in. That's none of that there. If Satan comes, and Eve doesn't go, oh my, a snake. She's attracted to him, the shining one. And he said to the woman, indeed, really. Has God really said that you should not eat from any tree in the garden? Now look at what He does. This one called the crafty one, the subtle serpent. Jesus called him the ruler of this world. Paul called him the god of this age. Martin Luther says there's not on earth one that his is is equal. One one man has written, he has the ear of humanity and whispers into it a lie, an outrageous but very attractive lie that makes man drool with desire. Uh, We studied, and I, I lose track of time on this stuff, six months ago, whatever it was, we studied the book of James. And when we studied the book of James, and You don't need to turn there. I can read this to you. You can make a note of it. When we study the book of of James, we we spent a week on this. It's James 1.14. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when that lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death that's exactly what we see here in Genesis 3. There's something external that is enticing something internal. It's really beneficial to understand just the dynamic of all of this. We're going to see that what Satan does here is really his standard operating procedure. He comes... Jesus again saying he's a murderer from the very beginning. And the first thing he really does, it seems as though, is kind of really question Eve about what God said. Did God really say that? Were those his exact words? And beyond that, is that really something that you'd expect a God to do? I mean, right? This is a God who said he loved you? If God loves you, why would he put any restrictions on you, Eve? If God really cares for you, why would he want to keep anything away from you? So the seed's planted, right? Eve responds, and she said, the the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you should not eat it or touch it or you will die. Now, just to the left in my Bible, you may have to turn a page or something, I don't know, get back to chapter 2, verse 16, because here's God's command. It was given to Adam, and my assumption now has been communicated either by God again, and we don't have record of it, or Adam has communicated it to Eve. But here's, here's the rule. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from it, for the day you eat from it you will surely die. Now, many people, I don't happen to be one of them, many people put a lot of emphasis on, look at how Eve has added to the Word of God. Don't, don't eat from it or touch it. And, and to me, and, and, and I'll go either way, I guess, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't spend a whole bunch of time on, boy, she's added to the Word of God, look at the danger. I don't know how she's going to eat it if she doesn't touch it. I mean, he's going to be bobbing for apples here or fruit in the middle of the, of the garden. I, I, I do think what, what she's communicating, what God communicates is, don't have anything to do with this. Don't lead us into temptation. But she responds and she says, yeah, that's pretty much what he says. The serpent looks at her, verse 4, and says, you surely will not die. And then I think speaks quickly. Notice what he does. He replaces some questioning, some doubt, with a very bold statement. You surely will not die. Why? God, here's God. God knows that the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God and you'll know good and evil. He comes along and he says, listen, Eve, do you understand what's going on here? This God that you think loves you mustn't love you very much. He's really a jealous God. He doesn't want you to be like him. And now we have in front of us the very issue of the first sin ever committed and really at at its core kind of the issue of all of our sin. It's who you're going to believe. Who is your God. In a bold place, sly, you're not going to die. Well, God has said you're going to die. It's really simple. In his life. Let's for a second take this out of it and just put it in your life. Here's what God says is true, and then you try to come up with some sort of way to rationalize it away, and God said if you do it, it's wrong, and it doesn't really matter the stuff in between. You're going to be like God. You're going to know good and evil. And in a sense, they become like God in the sense that they understand good and evil. At the same time, they now look at good and evil and all of life through a distorted view. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, John writes these words. Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world. Now, we talk about the world now. We talk about the world's system. Okay? and the thought process and the beliefs of the world. The world, the physical world as well, but it's driven by that thought process. For all that's in the world, look at it, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world, and the world's passing away. John tells us in 1 John, here's the deal, don't mess around with the world system, because the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, Those things aren't from God. Look at Genesis chapter 6 and look at the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. What did I say? Genesis 6? Yeah, I didn't mean that. I heard the ruffling of pages and I thought, wow, what have they been looking at? Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. For when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, It was a delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, boastful pride of life. She took and she ate, and she gave also to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, I'm just going to stop. It's not, it's not the emphasis here, but let me just help you understand. Satan doesn't deviate much from that. If you go to Matthew 4, when Satan is tempting Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, you'll see the same process. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. It's absolutely predictable how he's going to work in your life. Though it may be disguised as an angel of light, it's going to come in those areas. When I was in high school, uh, my my senior year, I was the second string quarterback, okay? And, And the kid that was ahead of me was a terrific player. It didn't pan out this way, though. He played college football, but pre pre preseason All-State quarterback was very good. So it's was pretty safe that unless we were way ahead or he got hurt, I wasn't going to have to play. So that's a pretty good spot to be in. What I had to do was every week learn the other team's offense and run it against our first-team defense. So we played a team, Davenport Central. And Davenport Central had kids that went there like Roger Craig, all the Craig boys. Roger Craig, Curtis Craig, uh, you know that name, Jim Jensen. All these guys went there. And and Davenport Central had this play that they they ran a counter. And and you would take it, you'd come, and, and as you're coming down, you're not handing off here. It's an inside handoff. And they would run this, they ran this play, and they killed you with this play. So here's what we would do, that play and others. We'd run a play. I had a friend of mine who was a halfback, a, a fastest guy we had, but he didn't like to get hit, which I'm down with that. So we'd run a play. I'd run a play. I'd give it to him. I'd turn around, and Jerry, be, he'd be gone. And here's what the coaches would say, and these are not the words you'll want to hear. They would say, what would they say? Run it again. Well, you've lost a little edge at this point with the defense, now everybody knows so then we'd come back and we'd run it again and about the time I'd get the ball to Jerry there'd be three guys there to hit him and it was a huge advantage well, here, I remember one day he said run it again so we're coming back and Jerry said don't run it and so I looked at a friend of mine and we went out this way here's what we did we faked this to Jerry and then I hit him here there was nobody out there because everybody thought we were going here so We were reprimanded for being disobedient. (laughs) But I just wanted to show them there's a lot of advantage when they know the play. If you know the play, presumably, I mean, now, we didn't have it in my day, but now you got catchers and pitchers standing there with the glove over their mouth because if anybody sees what they're going to say, they know the play. Satan says, I'll tell you the play. It's going to be the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the boastful pride of life. And he's confident enough to do it with Adam and Eve. He's confident enough with Jesus. He's confident enough with you. So all of a sudden, what we have now is we have pride that replaces innocence and humility. Well, all of a sudden now, we see things move very quickly. Eve eats, Adam eats. Look at verse 7. Here we go now. Then their eyes, both of them were open. They saw they were naked. Remember verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 25, they were naked, didn't bother them. They began to cover themselves. They sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loin covering. And now look what happens. They hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Just, just stay there for a second. D.A. Carson writes this, Consumed by one's own self-focus, we desire to dominate and manipulate others. Here is, he's talking about this incident, here is the beginning of fences, rape, greed, malice, uh, uh, bitterness, and war. All of a sudden, what's happened is Adam, and we we don't know this at this moment, Okay? We know it when we get to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, With one man's sin, Adam, sin entered into the world, and with sin all of us have died. Listen to this phrase. It's in your book, if you're reading through the Driscoll book, on page 149. Uh, D.A. Carson writes this, the heart of all evil is idolatry itself. This is a great phrase. It is the de-godding of God. It is the creature swinging his puny fist in the face of his maker and saying, in effect, if you don't see things my way, I'll make my own God, I'll be my own God. So that's what happens. That's what's going on there. You inherit that. That's the explanation. We'll come back and close this loop in a minute. That's the explanation for your life and the world around us. So at that moment, Adam sins. And what happens when we get to verse 7 and 8 is we see the covering of that. All of a sudden, he's aware, she's aware of their sin. They begin to try to protect themselves. They hide themselves from each other. And they begin to try to hide, as futile as it is, they begin to hide from God. So let's stick with what we've talked about. The triune God, revelation, creation, you're made in the image of God. So the question arises now at this moment, does this mean today we're not made in the image of God? And the answer is no. In Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, Genesis 9, 6, 1 Corinthians eleven seven, 7, James chapter 3, verse 9, here's what we're told, is that we're still made, you and me, we're made in the image of God. But that image now is distorted. So, so look at four areas here. Our relationship with God is distorted. So what does he do? He hides. Our relationship with ourselves is distorted. We don't see ourselves as we really are. We begin to cover up. Our relationship with other people are distorted. They were naked and innocent. Now they're grabbing for fig leaves, him one, her three, I assume, I don't know. They're grabbing, they're covering, they're hiding. They're not going to be real anymore. The relationship with each other is distorted. He begins to say, well, it's not my fault. She said, well, it's not my fault. And our relationship with all of creation is distorted. Watch how fast this goes. With that backdrop, watch how fast this goes. Verse 9, the Lord God called the man and he said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid And, and, and so now he's exposed. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you? And the man says, right, you know this, (laughs) the woman you gave to be with me. She gave it to me. It's her fault. See how distorted we are already? It's not my fault. You can't blame me. It's her fault. And she responds. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is it you've done? And she said, it's the serpent that deceived me. And in a sense what she's saying, God, it's the serpent you created in a roundabout way. It's your fault. Regardless, it's anybody's fault but mine. See how things were immediately jacked up. They hear him, and I've always been intrigued by verse by verse eight. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. That must have been the norm. We don't have any sense, and we talk about this all the time. I don't have any time frame. I don't know the time between Genesis 2.25 and Genesis 3.1. And I don't know the time between Genesis 3.5 and Genesis 3.6. I don't know the time between when they're in the garden and they're naked and they're innocent. I don't know how long it was until the serpent came. And once the serpent came and dialogued with Eve, I don't know how long it was until she looked at that tree and looked at that fruit. And I don't know how long it was that she looked at it. Did she look at it for like a day, a week, a month, a year? My suspicion not too long, but I don't know that. And now Adam and Eve eat. I don't know that time frame. All I know is that in that moment everything got turned upside down. Let me read you the sentence we started with. Something is terribly wrong and everyone knows it. That's the world we live in. Now we see it at different degrees. Let me read you a quote from Sigmund Freud. It's been a while since we've quoted Freud. Okay, He said this, Men are not gentle, friendly creatures wishing for love who simply defend themselves if they are attacked. But that a powerful measure of desire for aggression has to be reckoned as part of the instinctual endowment. Here's what he said. We're naturally naturally aggressive. We're naturally pushing out. The result of their neighbor. I'm sorry, the result is that their neighbor is to them not only a possible helper, a sexual object, but also a temptation to them to gratify their aggression on him, to exploit his capacity for work without compensating him, to use him sexually without consent, to seize his possessions, to humiliate him, to cause him pain, to torture and kill him. Who has the courage to dispute it in the face of all the evidence in his own world and history? Here's what Freud's saying. If we've ever been able to have enough empirical data to prove a fact, it's that man is in nature a sinner. That's what's wrong. Why does an athlete who's making millions of dollars, why does he go and snort it all up his nose? Why, why does a guy, I mean, you look at, you're Bernie Madoff or one of these guys, You see, Martha Stewart, you see it all the time. You got all this money. Why do you need more? What are you doing? You got a beautiful wife and beautiful kids and a beautiful family and a beautiful life, but that's not enough. You got to have the secretary too. You had a wonderful husband and all that goes with it, but you're not satisfied with that. You have to go back to school to get your degree in psychology so that you can go into the world and be significant. You're a kid that's born in a great place and you've been given great stuff, and yet there's something in us that's incurably restless. We want to control, we want to dominate. And I, I, I was with somebody not long ago, and they said, "So and so is a controller." Everybody I know is a controller. I don't know anybody who isn't a controller. Some are obvious about it. Some are quiet about it. Some are aggressive. Some are passive aggressive. Everybody wants their own way. And where you see this most blatantly is when we're in a position where we can be dominant by that position. So a husband with a wife, a parent with a child, a boss with an employee? What's in us? What caused that? This is the answer, Genesis 3. I'm made in the image of God. Adam, my perfect representative sinned, and when he sinned, it it, it affected all of us. So all of us are born with this sinful nature. I... Uh, Know how sad that sounds. And and it ought to raise the question how does it get fixed? And in a picture of God's grace, He tells you in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that He'll put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, and the woman, between her seed, your seed, and her seed. Here's what that's called proto evangelism. That's the first promise we have in the scripture of Jesus' coming, her seed, the, the virgin birth. So we look around the globe, we look around this country, we look in our family, and we see that something's wrong. It's called sin. We can respond to it in a whole variety of ways. We can say, well, it's, it's really no big deal. We can look at it that way. We can say, I'm a victim. I always felt bad for Adam and Eve because their flinch would have been to say, I'm a victim of my economic background, but paradise is a problem. <laughs> they didn't have parents to blame. They quickly learned, though, it's the woman you gave me. It's the, it's the serpent you created. We can take sin and laugh it off or minimize it. We can say, yeah, I know I'm really guilty, but there's no Repentance. Uh, We can talk about it as a disease and begin to explain our behavior away. We can say that it's an intellectual problem I don't know enough or an economic problem I don't have enough. This morning, and like I said to you, almost every day, I'll go through USA Today, Wall Street Journal, different stuff. In USA Today, uh, this morning, there's an article, the title is Atheist, Fourth of July, One Nation Under Godless." And then it's a story about how I, the organization, I don't know if there's American Atheists, uh, uh, spent $23,000 on a campaign. And the idea was to have, in 27 towns, have these guys drive around and tow a banner. And the banner uh, was to say, well, uh, atheism is patriotic. God less America. Not God bless, God bless America. And, and they found that they were having a problem. I got to fight this. They found that they were having this, this problem that uh, even the pilots they had were atheists, said, I don't think I want to do this. So it's a really interesting article. They, they made up 15,000 buttons, and you're to wear these buttons. Uh, m- remember when, when I was a kid, it was like I am loved buttons? Remember those? These say happy human. And the idea, and I just quote from the article, is to wear the pin on Monday to provoke conversation about the motto. And here's the motto now. You can be good without God. So that plays right into that. And as radical, we we may stop and go, oh, we know that's all wrong. A lot of the world buys that. Even those that would say they believe in a God would kind of go, I can be good. Here's what the Bible says. There is none good, no, not woman's 3.10. None good, no, not one. There's none who understands, none who after, seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good, no, not one. This is a, <laughs> no pun intended here, this is a typically human thought. I can be good without God. But the Bible comes along and says, yeah, here's what they're saying. I can do good things. I cannot love God and still cut my neighbor's grass. I cannot love God and still send, take food to people who are hungry. I can not help God, or not believe in God, and, and intervene when somebody's knocking down an old woman. That's not the issue. What God is saying is, our heart is polluted. That, that we, even when we do acts that are good by human standards, they're stinky rags to god here's here's the whole point of today sin is the problem and it's so important you learn this okay you, susan and i have a, i've certainly learned it in the last almost seven years now with the doctor you got to have the, an accurate diagnosis and then an accurate cure You get the diagnosis wrong, then then the cure will be wrong. So here you are today. If you're here and you know Christ, you've already embraced this. But here's what I know. I know at Redemption Gilbert on Sunday morning, we get a whole bunch of people who are not yet followers of Christ. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you've been here all along but never made this transition, never had the lights go off. Maybe you're here for the very first time. Somebody brought you. Who knows? Whatever. I want to tell you, though I have not yet had the chance to meet you, let me tell you what your problem is. The problem in the world is sin, and your problem is sin. The solution is Jesus. Your solution is Jesus. I get a call one day. From a guy who said, I, I want you to meet with a friend of mine, he's all messed up. And I said, okay, so I went out. And, and, I, and I, I, I've never had this happen before, never had it happen since. I sat down, and the guy said, Let me tell you about me. And he just started. He told me about him. He told me about screwing people in business. He told me about his wife. He told me about his girlfriend. He told me about his kids. He told me about drugs. He told me about stealing. He told me about porn. He told he, And it was just like that. Bing bing, 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 bing. And it just didn't, it's like he never took a breath. He just kept coming and coming and coming and coming and coming and coming. And, coming and he finally stopped. And he said, what do you think? And I said, I don't even know the problem, but I know Jesus is the answer. See, that's what we learn here. Why is it your first flinch to lie? Why is your first reaction when somebody's successful, a friend of yours, to be jealous? Why do you gossip and why is that a trial? Why do you care about the Casey Anthony trial? Really? this is interesting to you? Why why do we care about these things? Why when you're in a discussion with your spouse and he or she says, you always do this, rather than look at what it is you're doing, if you're a pro, like I am, You focus and go, always, in every time, every situation, every day, every minute, always, always, always. No, answer me, always. I'm fun to fight with. (laughs) Why is that? Why, when somebody comes with a criticism, why, why is it you can't hear? It's sin. So you have a distorted view of God. You have a distorted view of yourself. I've discovered that. I've discovered that in terms of managing people, dealing with people. We just can't see ourselves as other people see us. We can't often see ourselves accurately. Can I be misunderstood? Yeah. You don't really know me. I got that. But let me tell you what, you, what I see. Get it? We're, we're, we're in, in relationships. We're always holding back. You never tell the truth completely do you come on i do but i know you don't (laughs) we're we're a mess with the creation that's why that's why working the soil is now toil so you're here today your problem is not money if your problem's money the answer is money Your problem is not that you're not educated enough. If that's your problem, then education's the solution. Your problem is sin, and the solution is Jesus. Does that mean now my world's going to be smooth and easy and simple? No, because I still am a sinful person living with sinful people in a fallen world. I'm still going to have those same sets of challenges. I'm still going to die physically. I've been redeemed, and now God's in the process of restoring, but that restoration doesn't take place for us until we die, and then he comes again. To to those of you who are going, boy, I'll tell you, I'm here today, something's missing, and something's clicking. So right now, bam, 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 it's clicking with you. You're going, this is tracking. This makes sense. This explains why I'm meeting all my sales goals and all my quota, and yet I'm not satisfied. I got the girl I thought would make me happy, the house I thought would make me happy. I've got what I thought would make me happy, but I'm not happy. Why am I not happy? Because your problem is not a housing problem, it's a sin problem. And you'll never have enough of a person, place, or thing to fill that desire that can only be met with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So you're here today, and you're going, what do I do? Well, if you're one who knows Christ as your Lord and Savior, you draw near to Him. You continue to understand that He's your Lord and Master and Savior. We're going to look over the next four weeks and and we we talk about the covenants that God makes and then about Jesus, God becoming man, and then about the cross and then about the resurrection. That's the solution, but you may be there today saying, I can't wait four weeks. I don't have four weeks to wait. All of a sudden, I see my problem, or God seems to be doing something in my life, where I now see that there's this problem. What do I do? You put your faith and trust in Christ, that you believe who, that, he, he, that you are who he said he, you are, and that he is who he says he is. And in a really simple, simple gesture, not because you need them, but because it'll be helpful, there'll be men and women in the front of the room after this service who exist for that point of time, whether it's 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes or an hour, they're here for one reason, and that's to be God's instrument to minister to you. So talk to them. Or if you're a guest, talk to the person who invited you here today about what it means to know Christ in a personal way. For us now, we celebrate God's solution through communion. And then we respond in two ways beyond that. Through music in worship, and then from now until we gather again next week, we understand that we have the privilege of, of being God's hand and feet, salt and light, to the world around us. That our worship isn't limited to this place or this day, but everywhere we go as part of our act of worship, we present our bodies to God, and he uses us in ways, frankly, beyond anything we can imagine. Let me pray as Matthew comes to lead us in his time of communion. Father, thank you for the amazing truths. This totally makes sense to me, and I don't know if it's because I've been around it for a while. That might be it. Or if it's because uh, I'm familiar to it and accept I don't know. God, I'm just grateful that your word makes sense. That as your word is applied to our heart by your spirit, we understand ourselves, the world, you, the people around us. God, I pray that that for those right now who maybe feel some level of tension or or even conviction, that you would give them the courage to move and respond to this word, to talk to somebody in the front afterwards, or to talk to the person who brought them here today. God, thank you for loving us enough to tell us the truth about who we are. We pray this to you in Christ's name. Amen.